everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. I'm one of your bearded hosts. My name is Chris, and I'm here with my buddy, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Chris. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I'm in a lot of pain, but I'm good. Um, survived the trip to Arizona. The dolls did not get me, so woo! Woo! Those dolls are terrifying, man. Yeah. I, uh, Yeah. <laughs> every year i go out there like i you know like I, i'll send pictures of like you know i posted them in the the facebook group this week and like i usually like send my friends like pictures and everyone's always like just cover them up or like just turn them around and i'm terrified every time because i know um if i cover them up or I, like i turn them around and like i wake up and the dolls are like facing the right direction or like the the co- the cover is like off that i'm just gonna burn the house down and um I don't want arson on my criminal record. I have enough there already. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the picture, it's pretty much his the, the house in Arizona is filled with these old porcelain evil effigies of <laughs> Satan. They're just porcelain dolls from like, you know, throughout the decades, but they're creepy. Ex- yeah, I mean, there's stuff that like they're they're really old porcelain dolls that came from like my grandma and like my great grandma and like they immigrated from Poland and like there's just stuff from like old europey stuff that's just it's not that's not okay no very creepy yeah uh i am doing good i am very tired and uh i think it's just a combination of the heat because uh in southern california right now it's i wouldn't call it a heat wave being when it's constant because mm-hmm. it's just constantly hot now yeah uh so it's been uh hotter than usual i'll say and uh you know school's winding down still have a couple more classes right. Uh, I'm only crying once a week now, so that's an oh, improvement. Good. But yeah, aside from that, things are just peachy. Nice. So uh, before we get into anything else, I want to say if you haven't already, and if you can, it'd be greatly appreciated if you could go to wherever you're streaming this episode. Leave us a five-star review, a little blurb about how much you like the show. That little bit of uh, help will go a very long way for us. Yeah. And uh, what are you going to be covering tonight? I am covering something called the Belmez Faces. Sounds creepy. (laughs) Yes, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I will be covering um, kind of like, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but it kind of is, but it also might not be. So I'm just going to call it the conspiracy of Bob Lazar and and Area 51. Nice. I like it. That's funny. I almost covered uh, UFOs today. I should have done that. Dang it. It would have been out of this world. I know. It just would have been, yeah. Our synchronicity wasn't happening today. No, no. You fought it. You felt it, and then you fought it. See, it's, let's see what happens when I travel. It just, it, it throws, the universe is just throwing me out of whack. <laughs> My asparagus must be in Capricorn or something. Yeah, Gatorades and Venus. Yeah. And I don't know. How, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, something about that. Yeah. So uh, I went first last week, so that means yes. you are up. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do this. All right. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm covering the Belmez faces, which is it's a pretty cool story, but there's a lot to take in. So before we begin, I want to remind you all that just take a big hit of our organic free ranged bearded pink Himalayan sea salt and strap in for a nice ride. The story of the Belmez faces takes place in, wait for it, the village of Belmez de la Morelda, which is a village in a rural area of Andalusia, Spain. The faces of Belmez began to appear in a home, and more specifically, the floor of the kitchen in the home. In August of 1971, a woman named Maria Gomez Camara was working in her kitchen when she noticed a strange stain on the concrete floor. 
At least she thought it was a stain. She tried to wipe it away, but it didn't go away. What is kind of weirder is that throughout the day, the stain got larger and eventually formed into what looked like a human face. Now, there's a I know there's the phenomenon that's called the face pareidolia, where we see faces in everyday objects. But we're gonna we'll post some of the pictures on the social media. When you see them, like it's pretty difficult not to see a face. Um, the other weird thing about the face is that it kind of seemed to change positions or angles and its orientation throughout the day. Maria did her best to try to scrub the face away, but never had any luck. Now, Maria also claimed to be a medium and felt that the face showing up was some kind of act of paranormal activity. But to her credit, I think she did something very rational that any of us would do when a random face showed up in the concrete. She told her husband Juan and her son Miguel to get a pickaxe and fuck that face up. So they destroyed the face and the area around it, and they poured new concrete in the hole and patched everything up and made it good as new. Boom. Case closed. Cue scene of men clapping the dust from their hands and walking slowly into the sunset with a pickaxe over their shoulder. But in the immortal words of Coach Lee Corso from College Game Day, not so fast, my friend. Less than a week later, a new face began to show up. And what's more is that face was coming in seemed much clearer than the original face. At this point, I can imagine Juan grabbing his trusty pickaxe and saying out loud to no one in particular, it's time to pickaxe and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of gum. But before he could do that, the mayor showed up, and he's like, uh-uh, like, we're not doing that. It seems that the story of the house with the faces in the floor had started to make its way around the small, relatively small town and eventually got to the mayor. He not only told them you can't destroy the face, but he gave an order forbidding any work to be done anywhere near the floor. After studying of the faces, the, the mayor ordered a large chunk of the floor carefully removed to be studied by his team of scientists. The family then reconcreted the open hole and hoped that that was the end of it. Unfortunately for the family, there was no, they were nowhere near the end of this strange journey. Within another week or so, a new face was back. And not only that, the new face brought some friends. According to reports, the floor was soon covered with several different faces. Some faces would fade away and disappear only to be replaced soon after with a new face. Not only were the faces popping up all over the place, they were also distinctively different faces. By this point, the house was garnering so much attention that the mayor had to station guards to prevent people from breaking in and seeing the faces. Some people were let in, and those people were mainly parapsychologists and other paranormal investigators and scientists sent to study. They wanted to study the faces and see if there was a paranormal reason behind them. And while the parapsychologists were studying the floors, the sample that was taken by the mayor and his team came back and concluded that, quote, analysis of the floor showed no reason for the apparition. Eventually, the mayor sealed off the house and left it under the careful eye of a notary to make sure no one entered the house. The family then left the house for three months to see if the faces would go away or as most skeptics predicted, the kitchen would be exactly the same as they left it. When they reopened the house, some faces were gone while others had moved and even more had shown up. Almost a year later, in April of 1972, a professor and leading parapsychologist in Spain named Professor Germán de Argumosa came to Belize from Madrid to study the faces. Professor Armagosa immediately began doing research into the area to see what may have been causing these faces to appear. He was able to dig up some information about a 17th century governor who was the governor of Granada, but was born in the town of Belmez and came back on vacation. During that vacation, he inexplicably murdered five members of a local family. Reports differ, but most seem to think that the murder happened either in the family home or very close to it. 
Not only that, when Arma goes to collaborate with a local officials, they determine that the local church was also very close to the home and that locals believe the house is built on top of the old cemetery. In so many horror movies, they tell us that nothing bad can possibly happen when you build it on top of a sacred burial site, right? So after making the discovery, Armagosa convinced the family and local authorities to carefully remove the floor and excavate the, the ground below the house. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, a few feet below the surface of the ground, bones were found. Lots and lots of human remains were just feet below the house, and strangely enough, many of the skeletons were missing their skulls. Priests from the local church took the remains and reinterred them in their own cemetery, and analysis of the bones dated them at over 700 years old. To be thorough, Professor Amargosa decided to look into other homes nearby, and when excavated, they found human remains also under the house, but those homes showed no evidence of those freeloading hippie faces living rent-free in the homes. For a while, the faces stayed gone, and Professor Amargosa began looking into more of the paranormal aspects of the faces and tried to see what he could find. He began doing several EVP sessions, and report, he reported that he discovered several sounds, but most, most notably, picked up the voices of a child. He said the voices seemed good and were happy, but the sounds that were captured were a, quote, mixture of hell and a brothel, which I don't really know what hell and a brothel sounds like, but that sounds interesting. While the professor was doing his thing, the family decided they needed a kitchen floor again, so they reconcreted and re-poured, and the town waited with bated breath to see if anything would come back. And, well, after about a month or so, the faces began returning. On June 6, 1972, a face greeted Maria when she went to use the kitchen in the morning. This face, however, seemed to change its expression very quickly throughout the day. Soon, several more faces were appearing, so Professor Armagosa lined the floor with foil to rule out any foul play. Once again, however, when the foil was lifted, there were new faces that popped up, despite the, the foil showing no signs of being walked on, torn, or anything. Thinking outside the box, the professor decided to pay out of his own pocket to have the family convert another room into a new quote-unquote kitchen as a test of sorts. The weird thing is after the floor was poured on the new kitchen, the faces started showing up there too. Professor Argomosa then decided to call on a friend and fellow paranormal investigator, Dr. Hans Bender, who traveled from Germany to Belmez. Although he could not stay, stay long, he witnessed the faces moving and disappearing and reappearing. Together, the two of them did as much investigation as they could. A decade later, another paranormal investigator named Jose Martinez Romero visited the house to see if the faces were still appearing. He claimed that he witnessed the faces appearing and disappearing several times during his stay. He took photos of the floors after the faces disappeared, but did not take photos when they were appearing. He contradicted himself by saying maybe he hallucinated and he didn't really see the faces appear. Professor Argomosa was critical of Romero and said that his quote-unquote research did nothing to prove the faces were real and actually helped to discredit the work he and Bender did. Spurred by this criticism, Romero returned with another investigator named Andrew McKinsey in 1988 and the faces were still there. Not only were they still there, but the faces appeared to be darker and less prevalent. Almost like someone tried to erase them, but they had like a really old pencil and the hard eraser just kind of smeared everything around. Um, Romero theorized that the faces were connected with Maria and her possible psychic abilities. He felt that based on her mood, the faces would then change. In fact, almost every theory comes to the conclusion that Maria had some sort of connection to the faces appearing. The theory that Professor Argamosa holds is that Maria, being a medium, had created a phenomenon known as thoughtography 
Thoughtography is the belief that psychics can project images from their minds into objects. One of the most well-known psychics who claims to be able to produce thoughtographs is Chris's old buddy, Yuri Geller. I won't give my opinion on the man because I, I was raised that you don't have anything nice to say about someone. You don't say anything, but suffice to say, I think he's full of shit. Yeah, I wasn't taught that growing up, so the guy's <laughs> full of shit. <laughs> now, this isn't to discredit photography in the case of the Belmez faces. By all accounts, Maria was a medium and was able and had some sort of psychic powers. Argamosa and Romero theorized that Maria was able to project the faces using the energy from the souls of those who had passed. Another more negative theory is based on what skeptics have been thinking from the get-go, that the family was making this all up for fame and money of some sorts. And several researchers put a lot of time and effort into this theory that it's all bullshit. A journalist named Luis Ruiz Nogues noted that the chemical composition of the samples taken early on came back with tons of evidence of lead and chromium. These are two minerals that are commonly used in paint, especially in the 1970s when the faces began showing up. I have a little hard time believing that the theory is about paint because she did try to wash them away and even lead-based paint would wash away on concrete after a little bit. Another skeptic, a sociologist named Manuel Martin Serrano, says that he interviewed most of the townspeople and friends and family of the family and his findings concluded that the social dynamics were there and they made him believe that the family was attempting to pull off a hoax for financial gain. A parapsychologist who believes it was a hoax points to the quote-unquote stains, as he calls them, as them disappearing and then later reappearing is based on a simple chemical reaction. He says that the stains are created due to some sort of mixture of soot and vinegar. And he says, based on this chemical reaction, he could recreate the disappearance by bang a simple solution to remove concrete stains. He was quoted as saying, quote, with regard to the enigma, of, the enigma of the chemical procedure, I solved it by discovering that this compound can be found in a drugstore by asking for a German product to remove concrete stains. The mystery that the images were invisible and latent for some time is thereby solved. Sadly, Maria died in 2004, and most skeptics thought the faces would disappear with her. However, the faces seemed to contort and change appearance only. Some started to lose their shape and structure, but as recent as, two, recent as 2012, the faces were still appearing. Now, honestly, for me, I don't really know what to make of it. It almost seems too unbelievable to be true, but I also think that's what draws me in. You know, most skeptics still hold to the fact that in some way the faces were painted on or somehow made by manipulating pigments. Again, like I said earlier, I don't believe that based on how much studying was done of these things. And in fact, in 2014, a team of investigative journalists, a doctor in chemical engineering, and a forensic criminologist got together and decided to study the faces. They were able to take several samples from the concrete in and around the faces, and after analysis determined that, quote, they weren't made with paint. And not only that, the doctor of chemical engineering, Dr. Jose Javier Grasinea, stated, quote, according to scientific knowledge and techniques employed in the analysis, there is no external ma manipulation of or elements of the faces. The forensic team then attempted to re reproduce the faces using several different methods, including concrete solvents, silver nitrate, hydrochloric acid, but they all failed to re reproduce the results. When asked about it, the lead criminologist said, quote, the words summarizing my opinion are absolute bewilderment. And it seems we will never know what causes these faces to appear, but they're still happening. And that, my bearded friends, is the story of the Belmez faces. That's got to be just a, a crazy thing to discover in your house. 
Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, let, let's just, you know, Occam's razor. Let's go with, like, the, the most likely scenario, right? Let's just yeah. say they are random stains and it's not supernatural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You still need to explain how they got there. Exactly. And why they're changing and moving. And and I there's just no evidence for any of that. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I could get it if it's like floorboards or something that kind of warps with like weather and heat and different things like that. But like this is concrete in like the rural hills of Spain. Like I think if something was gonna warp and change, it would have done so prior to 1972. Um, or it would be a phenomenon if it's something in the ground that's causing it, like it would happen to more than just one home, you know? Like it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, technically it would be happening today. Exactly. Yeah. Like in every house or whoever exactly, yeah. used that, you know, the the type of uh concrete mix, mm-hmm. they'd have those same things. Which I mean, you can like start thinking about like there's uh you know, impurities in the mix and so yeah. over time all of that surfacing. But uh-huh. eventually it's going to run out. Yeah. And it's like I'll, like I said, we'll, we'll post the pictures and when you look at some of the, the pictures, like there's some of them like, okay, like it's just kind of wavy lines. It is like the facial Pirelia or whatever it is where it's like, it looks like a face, but then there's some of those like, no, like that's not like lines, like random lines. Like that's a, that's a face. Um, and some of them are pretty disturbing to look at. Like the ones like after Maria died, when they started to kind of lose shape and kind of like wilt away and get bad, like they're, they look disturbing. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And the thing that drove me nuts is like doing all the research. I tried to dig it like as deep as I could. I was in like 15 pages deep on Google trying like all the sources say like, oh yeah, there's this, you know, they found the bot the bodies and most of them were missing the skulls. Like, I want to know what the hell happened to the skulls. Like, no, like you're just going to gloss over that. Like no one's going to dig into that. Like it, it drives me crazy. Like, I feel like that's a pretty important piece of information to know like, oh yeah, we found all these skeletons and most of them are missing their skulls. And then these faces are appearing in concrete. Like, well, I mean, trying to find their way. So it was uh, 700 years ago when the the bodies were in the 1970s. Yeah, so 1200 something. Uh, I think Mel Brooks said it best with the Inquisition yeah. is coming for <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they're in Spain, so most likely, you know, I mean, that could have something to do with it, but that's just speculation. Um, yeah, that's that's bizarre. <laughs> cool. All right, um, let's move on to a commercial break. And we're back. And now it's time to get into our banter with the Beardsleys. So what is banter with the Beardsleys? Banter with the Beardsleys is our fun, unscripted, um, whatever you, the listeners, send into us, we're going to talk about it. So if there's anything that, you know, you're curious about something, you want to know something about us, some lifestyle tips or whatever you let us know. We'll talk about it on air. We'll give our opinion. We'll, you know, go back and forth depending on how hot topic of an, of an issue it is. Um, and yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. And I understand you have a listener submitted question. I do. It comes from one of our bearded friends, Craig. And he asks, what do you think John Lennon would be doing if he were alive today still? Oh, man. <laughs> right? Oh. So this is just my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, John Lennon was a prolific writer and singer and just an amazing artist and musician, right? Like there's no question or doubt about his talent. Mm. He was also kind of a jerk. 
Yeah. He was like uh, very abusive with like his wife and his, his kid. And he was just not a good person. So I think if he was still alive today, he would probably be as abrasive and, ab and as obnoxious as like a Ted Nugent without like the, the crazy <laughs> like right wing views. He's probably, he would probably be like the, the more liberal version of that, just insanely mm -hmm. eccentric with a horrible attitude. I could definitely see a Beatles reunion probably happening up until when George Harrison died. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think he would just be this cantankerous guy who thinks he's just better than everybody. Cause he, he let's be real. He he's better than almost everybody ever. Yeah. That's just, mm -hmm. he was given that talent. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think he would be kind of a, not a great guy. Like he wouldn't be the <laughs> one you can go and get a selfie with. Mm -hmm. That's just uh that's just my take on it. No, that makes sense. What about you? How do you, how do you envision a John Lennon today? Uh, I'm going to go a little slightly different than where you went. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm merely basing this on more of the, humanitarian aspect that he was he was into and trying to strive for um i think he'd be really sad if he was alive today <laughs> um because he was big on like the whole world peace and all that crap and you know trying to be better than everyone um so i feel like the state of where the world is right now and how everything's kind of kind of crazy a little bit everything's all up in the air with a lot of things um I feel like he would be kind of upset. I think he would be kind of like you're saying that like he'd be kind of like out there, like kind of on the, the more militant side, maybe the, just a little bit more on the liberal militant side about like, you know, the climate change and different things like that. I feel like he would be the one out leading protests and doing stuff like that. Um, it would be fun to see him and like Trump go at it. It'd be fun to see what would happen. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, th I think he would, he would, probably be trying to do all that stuff um but i also agree with you that he would probably be doing that in a way that you know kind of like looking down on everyone else like i care about this so much more than you do um so yeah i don't know that's kind of kind of what i'm thinking yeah uh have you seen the movie yesterday uh is that the musical Kind of. So this guy wakes up and discovers. Oh, no, I have not. It looks good, though. I have not seen it. It's a great date movie. I don't want to give any uh -huh. spoilers about it. But, you know, they kind of touch on that, on, on that, uh, like, what if scenario, uh -huh. if, you know, they were alive today. And it was it was a very interesting twist. Um, uh -huh. But highly recommend that movie. So I won't go into to spoilers because I know a lot of people didn't see that movie. Mm hmm. But it would be interesting. I, I would want to know what his thoughts would be on the all-star Gal Gadot tribute of Imagine. Yeah. Because uh, it didn't go over well with regular people. No, <laughs> so. no, no. It was not, not, not nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that kind of answers it. I think we both kind of agree he would definitely be a, a, a social voice yeah. For everything happening right now with different degrees of kindness. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a little pretentious, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was very pretentious back then. Exactly, yeah. It uh, would be exacerbated in yeah, modern day, I think. Especially with the way the Beatles are still idolized all these years Exactly, later. yeah, like, exactly. So, yeah. But it would have been cool to go see him, like, do, you know, when Paul McCartney's on tour to see John show up and do, like, a song with him or something. Yeah, that would be fun. 
So yeah, I hope that answered Greg's question there. Yeah, thanks for the uh, question, Greg. And now it's uh, time for you to get into Bob, Bob Lazar. Lazar. Yeah. All right. And uh, if you have a, a question you'd like us to talk about, it could be anything from career advice, love and life advice, or our favorite recipes or anything in between. We'll yeah. give you uh, all the contact info where you can send that in a little bit later. So I'd like to start with a personal disclaimer. I generally try to steer clear of subjects that can't be substantiated one way or the other. It just feels somewhat irresponsible to me personally to tell you guys 20 minutes of stuff for the whole thing to be a hoax. But occasionally, there are things that can only live in that gray area. That area where solid factual proof doesn't exist, but that doesn't disprove the story as a whole. This is one of those stories. Now, I do believe in science and have actually worked to a degree in the specific field that I'm covering and can honestly say, although the evidence isn't solid, the science strangely is. So, let's get into it. We all have that neighbor or friend or acquaintance where we're just not quite sure what they actually do for work. Accountant, engineer, it was something in tech, right? Well, let's imagine it's the late 80s and that friend invites you and a few others from your group to a late night outing. He doesn't tell you where you're going or what to expect, just that something from his work is getting tested. It's late. He takes you to a hilltop near a dried up lake bed north of Las Vegas. You sit in the darkness waiting for something to happen. Your friend keeps looking down at his watch. He stops and looks up with a grin. Confused, you look up too. It's just the night sky. That is, until out of nowhere, a strange light is seen in the sky. It jets across the horizon in a second, performing maneuvers that just aren't possible. And then, in the blink of an eye, it vanishes. In complete shock, you walk silently back to the car. And that's when bright lights blind you in the darkness. A man's voice shouts the order, down on the ground, now. This is the strange, true story of Bob Lazar. To start with, that night really happened. Bob took several groups of friends out to the middle of the desert, and by all accounts, UFOs appeared in the sky within a few minutes of Bob's predictions. How did he know this? Well, we'll get into that. After the group was conned in the desert, Bob was terrified. He was afraid the government was after him and his family, so he did the most logical thing he could think of. He went public. He reached out to a Las Vegas news station and was put in touch with a longtime field correspondent by the name of George Knapp. If you're a longtime paranormal junkie like myself, you might recognize Knapp as a longtime guest host of Coast to Coast AM, a very creepy paranormal radio show. Bob agreed to do the meeting under the condition that his identity would be hidden, and they agreed to keep him in shadows and call him Dennis. The interview airs. In it, it's the wildest story the Las Vegas news station has ever aired. Bob, or Dennis, began telling his story. He claimed he was a physicist who worked at a secret government base south of Groom Lake, or Area 51. He would go on to describe in detail how he would arrive for work. He would get bussed in in a windowless bus and dropped off right in front of a hangar door. 
but it wasn't a normal hangar. It was texture painted to blend in with the desert landscape. He would describe in detail how he would be escorted to his work area in the hangar by armed guards. And this is where it starts to get interesting. He began to describe the project he was hired to work on. According to Bob, or Dennis, the United States government had, at the time, nine separate alien craft that did not originate on this planet. He would describe in detail the way the crafts looked on the inside, how there were no wires connecting anything, no sharp edges on any chair, table, or control board. It was three floors, but everything was so small he had a crouch to fit inside. He could only look at things that were directly important to his specific job, and his job was to reverse engineer the propulsion system in one of the craft. He would go into full detail about how the system worked. Now, this is going to get a little bit science-y, but it's going to come back into play. When asked if the system could have been produced on Earth by some foreign government, Bob laughed. He said, quote, LOL, there's no possible way these were made here. These aren't propulsion systems. A propulsion system throws something out the back end, air or, or turbulence, and it causes the craft to move forward. These are powered by element 115. George Knapp was confused and needed him to explain the difference. Bob said, imagine a bowling ball sitting on your bed. Now imagine pushing your fist into the mattress about a foot away. The bowling ball is going to roll towards your hand, right? That's what these systems do with gravity. Half kidding, Bob was asked if he knew of any aliens walking around the base. Oddly, Bob had an answer. He said, quote, Oh, they called them the kids. And no, I haven't seen any. But there was one time I was walking down the hall of the hangar. There was a door with a small window in it. One of those with the chicken wire in the glass. I wasn't supposed to, but I glanced inside. I saw two men in lab coats facing the door. They were looking down at this small gray being with long arms sitting in a very small chair like on the craft. Again, it was a fraction of a second. For all I know, it was a doll or mannequin sitting in the chair and they were getting the measurements. When asked why he's coming forward, Bob said, I don't care about the UFO stuff or the spotlight. I care about the science. There's a technology available that could change the course of mankind, and the government is keeping it from the American people. It's their right to know. It's also the, their right to know that there are other intelligent species in our universe. That part isn't my concern, but the people should know that. And I want to put all of this on the record in case anything happens to me or my wife. The interview blew up. Just about every news station was re-airing the segment. They decided they should probably check the sources on this Bob Lazar guy. So they did a full investigation on him. Bob claimed he worked at Los Alamos, another highly secretive military base. He claimed he went to Caltech and had several various degrees throughout his career. Absolutely none of it could be verified. When they asked Bob about it, he said he'd been getting threatening calls and had to call the police after his tires were shot out when he was getting on the freeway. So his best guess was it was the government trying to erase him. Not satisfied, George Knapp needed more facts. He figured if he really went to Caltech, someone there would have seen him. So he started digging around and found his actual friends from that time. And two of them regularly would drop him off at the campus and pick him up from the Caltech library. One friend would go so far as to say if he was faking going there, he sure went above and beyond 
15 years ago to prove it today. That seemed to kind of work for Knapp. But what about Los Alamos? Well, for starters, to get hired at a government facility like that, there's an extensive background check that needs to happen. They actually sent investigators to ask questions to your friends and your neighbors, and Bob actually remembered the name of his caseworker. He said it was a weird name, something pin, thick pin. Sure enough, they found an employee who worked in the clearance department named Michael Thigpen. That isn't solid evidence that Lazar worked at the base, though. So they started investigating the people that Bob said he worked with. And sure enough, they were real people, and they all remember working with Bob Lazar. That's when the investigators found a newspaper clipping about an eccentric engineer from Los Alamos who liked to race his rocket-powered dragster down the main road. The engineer in the paper? Bob Lazar. His old neighbors knew him as well and loved playing with his rocket-powered toys he would make. But there still wasn't anything concrete connecting him to the base. That is until one of his old co-workers found an old phone directory for the base from when Bob was there, and sure enough, under the L's, there was Lazar, Robert. The government forgot to erase him from their own phone book. <laughs> When asked why there just as any actual tangible proof he did all this stuff, Lazar said, quote, You can sit here and get muddled in the details all you want, but think about it. They didn't just hire me out of high school. So if you want to be distracted by it, but that's fine. But something had to have happened in between that, in between Los Alamos and high school, right? It's common sense. Now, I don't want all this intention anyway, so believe what you want. In 1990, George Knapp was sure Bob was about to confess to being a fraud. Bob was arrested for trying to start a brothel in a residential area, violating a ton of zoning codes and multiple felonies. It was all reduced to one felony count of pandering. His attorneys began to try and plead the charge down, which the judge would be open to pending a thorough background check. This would be his chance to come clean and admit the whole thing was a hoax. He actually didn't. He repeated the same story about working at S4, the, the base south of uh, Groom Lake, Los Alamos, studying at Caltech. The courts couldn't verify any of it. In fact, they couldn't verify much about his past at all. Out of frustration or, quote, some other act, after pleading guilty to the felony charge, Lazar was sentenced to community service and a court order for psychotherapy, essentially the 90s version of sex addict therapy. In a 2018 documentary about Bob Lazar by fellow Beardy and documentarian Jeremy Corbell called Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers, George Knapp would go on to say that this trial would make him a believer. Quote, he had every chance to come clean. His freedom was on the line and he repeated the story exactly and made no money from it. And fun fact, that kind of lends credence to the story as well. The guy who made the documentary, Jeremy Corbell, he's the guy who leaked the UFO footage from the government, which essentially made the United States government admit that UFOs are real. During the filming of the doc, Corbell asked Bob to go into detail about Element 115, which Bob was happy to explain. Corbell asked if he had any of it still. Lazar visibly tensed up. He demanded everyone ditch their phones or any device that was connected to the internet. He had them all placed in a small lead box to block any signal and then had them bury the box. The interview continued on a non-smart handheld camera. 
Bob talked about how he used to have a small amount for research and he kept getting raided, so he knows where some is, but it's off his premises. The next scene is later that evening. Corbell is back at his hotel and he starts recording after he gets a text from Bob in full panic mode. Right when the interview ended for the day, his office was raided again. They went through every single thing and found absolutely nothing. He thought they were just trying to get a message across. Bob Lazar came forward with this story almost 30 years ago. He hasn't changed it once. He's even had several lie detector tests that came back truthful. So much so, one of the most seasoned test administrators had his police detective colleagues examine the test results, and they concurred he was truthful about everything he said. What do I think? Well, I believe it was last Friday, Congress released a study that they conducted about UFOs, and they determined with the Pentagon and other intelligence agencies that UFOs, in fact, do exist. They just can't confirm the existence of aliens at this time. Oh, and that element 115. It officially became an element in the early 2000s, about 20 years after Bob mentioned it. So with all that, it's not unimaginable for the government to make someone's life a living hell. I mean, if you've ever owed them taxes, you know what I'm talking about. So them vanishing Bob's academic and work records seems plausible. And if the government is admitting UFOs are real, why couldn't he have worked on one in the 80s? So, is it true? Although I can't flat out prove it, I believe him. He had absolutely nothing to gain by coming forward, especially if he was trying to work in the sciences. He was essentially labeled a nut job for the rest of his career. And he's still alive today and runs a small science lab somewhere in middle America. And this is the bizarre tale of Bob Lazar. And I should note, the way they got busted on that hilltop at the beginning of the story. So, during their investigation on Bob to get him clearance to work at the base, they discovered that his wife was having an affair. They thought because of that affair, it might drive him crazy, and he might switch sides and start kind of working as like a double agent type thing, so they bugged his phone. And that's how they caught him. They found out he was calling his friends to come look at these UFOs that the government was test flying. And uh, yeah, after a couple of trips out, they waited for him and busted him. And that was the catalyst for the whole thing. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah. So I, I don't know, man. I just, I, it makes a lot of sense. I can see how, you know, if we have footage of UFOs, why couldn't we have a crashed one? Yeah, exactly. I think um, the whole thing, like, like you said, like you know, his story. When people, if they're lying, they have a, you know, it's all bullshit or whatever. Like, throughout time, there's always a little cracks. Like, you start to notice like inconsistencies in their stories, and like, maybe he's the greatest like con artist liar in the world, and he's an ironclad memory to remember everything. But I feel like for how long he's been telling that story to still be telling the exact same story and like under oath and all this stuff. And, you know, like, it's, I don't know, like it seems so legit and like, it was like the element 115, like some of that stuff is like, there was, he was talking about stuff like that before like science quote unquote discovered that, you know what I mean? Like he was talking about that before that was like a legit, like acceptable thing. Like it's gotta be somewhat real, you know? Yeah, and um, I believe it was George Knapp. They, he got clearance to do like a, a special tour of Los Alamos, 
the military base. Mm-hmm. So he's asked Bob, well, how do I get around? How do I get to where you were? Like thinking if he's not on site, there's no he way. Won't be able to, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, oh, actually I'm in town. I'll show you. So he shows up to the base. They get clearance and he starts walking through, waving to his old coworkers. Everyone's telling him hi, <laughs> like he's visiting his old, jo- old job site. And so George Knapp was like, holy crap, this is real. <laughs> like they know he knows exactly how to get to these weird little offices and these nooks and crannies. The people there acknowledge him like an old friend. Like this, this isn't this, this is real. And there was another specific thing Bob Lazar came out about. He was saying that in order to get access to Los Alamos, there was a hand scanner, you know, you, you like scan your badge to get into some buildings for work and stuff. Well, at Los Alamos, it was a hand scanner and on it, there was these metal bars that you'd rest your fingers on and that would measure the bone density in your fingers because that is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And everybody dismissed that and said that was just like some crazy sci-fi story. It's not real. Well, Los Alamos just relatively recently came forward and said, no, we have those. We've been using them for years. (laughs) And it's like the only place on earth that has these. And it's one of those things where it's not written about because of, you know, it's top secret information. It's a top secret base. But he was, he, he knew about them. He knew how they worked and like the process to get, you know, uh, signed in with your hand mm. scan. Yeah, that's nuts. And, you know, like Bob was saying, like something had to have happened between high school and him working there because there's evidence that he was there. Yeah. So do we get caught up in the details of the minutia or do we just kind of accept it and move on? I don't know. Yeah. That's so hard. Cause it's like, you want to be a stickler for the details and like the, that's where, you know, like the proof is in the pudding and it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't like, <laughs> I think you said like, like the, I want to believe takes over. Right. And it just seems there's more evidence to it being legit and him knowing than there is to like not knowing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to stand with him. I think it was a real thing. And I think with the way that things are happening now with the government admitting to UFOs, like I think the stigma of it is going away. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a place soon enough where, we're going to want to hear his story. We're going to want the whole thing. And mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be those ones where we just accept that it's real. It's, I think that'll happen sooner than later. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, man. Um, if somebody wanted to write in and give us a topic for banter with the Beardsleys, give us a story idea. Cause fun fact, this one actually stemmed from a conversation with one of our bearded friends, Chris out in Florida. So thank nice. you, Chris, for this subject idea. So if somebody <laughs> else wanted to do it, where and how can they do that? They can do that by contacting us on any of our social medias. Our Instagram is at Bearded Things Pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash bearded things. We have that aforementioned super cool Facebook group that we are, you know, slowly building the base there. So please find that. That is the Bearded Things, Bearded Friends group. Uh, you can also find us our Twitter, which is at Bearded Things, and our YouTube, which is at Bearded Things Pod. We have an email, which is www.beardedthings.com. On there's a contact us form. You can fill that out. It comes straight to our emails. And then we also have an email, which is contact us at beardedthings.com. Please send in any questions, topic ideas, 
just to say hi, whatever you want to do. We love hearing from you guys. We love having those interactions. So please don't be shy. Don't hesitate and send in anything you have. Yeah. And uh, again, don't forget to give us a good rating and a five-star review if you can. Again, that means the world to us and helps us mm -hmm. get out to more people. So if you're enjoying it, there's a good chance your friends will enjoy it too. Yeah. Share the wealth. Don't be stingy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that'll just about do it for us this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.